If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome, everyone, once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. Brief update from last week. No news from Portugal or Estonia about our current rankings on the <sighs> Hobbyist Podcast. I want to be number one with a bullet. We're going to have to we're gonna canvas hard. I think we should go like a, do a door-to-door sort of... That might be a bit risky, but we definitely have to do something grassroots. It's true. So to all our Portuguese and Estonian listeners, time to step it up. Yeah. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney. And with me, as always, is the better half, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? <laughs> always good, Mark. So today, we're going to be talking about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and our feature game this week is Beyond the Sun by Dennis K. Chan. I am looking forward to talking about... It's been another great week of board games. Last, yeah. last show was packed with excellent quality games, both new and returning ones, and this week, for me, is much the same. Much the same, for sure. What did you play this week, Mark? Well, first off, I got to play Pax Renaissance with a patron. I taught Pax Renaissance, and teaching Pax Renaissance is ideal for a number of reasons. Number one, the rulebook is not terribly good, and number two, it is festooned with a whole bunch of weird and inaccurate and sometimes very ooky asides by the author Phil Eklund. And so the best part of, of te- being able to teach Pax Renaissance from another human is that you get a better sense of context, namely one that strips away all the ridiculous politicizations and a historical ruminating on the nature of, of noble bankers by Phil Eklund and how nasty and inward-looking and introspective Easterners are. Anyway, so I got to play Pax Renaissance. It was a very brief but quality game. It was. I always tell people when they're about to play Pax Renaissance, get ready for your worst game of Pax Renaissance ever, because nothing's going to make sense. The answer to every question of why would I do this is, well, it depends, and the depends is a series of five-pointed nested conditionals. Walker is nodding with the look of recognition of a man who has been subjected to Pax Renaissance. Ah, those were the days. Indeed. But this was actually a really, really good 35-minute encapsulation of what Pax Renaissance was all about. The person with whom I was playing, I will call him Charlie, 
went to an early lead through the Ottoman Empire, and I did not fall prey to my normal habit of getting behind uh, Radu the Handsome, mostly because he didn't show up. <laughs> Instead, what we had was a jihad of the Ottoman Empire, turning it into a caliphate, and then I won with a religious victory. And it was a, one of those instances where, in a brief game, three of the four victory conditions were within striking distance for various players at various times. And so I was very pleased with how it turned out. He seemed to enjoy it, although maybe he was just being polite. He was perhaps uh, thinking about all the other things he could have done with his money. Which, and or time. And or time, which would have been eminently reasonable. But I adore Pax Renaissance, and rarely do I get a chance to show it off in such an ideal uh, environment. And especially, just a final note on the resources publicly available for Pax Renaissance. Despite the fact that we live in an age where nearly every game has half a dozen video rules explanations available for it. Now, granted, I don't watch them, so I don't know how comprehensive, but I, I, I take it as given that at the very least these video rules explanations are going to be comprehensive because... By and large, people are doing are, are consuming them so they don't have to read the rule book. And if you have to supplement it with actual reading, then what's the point? But the video resources available for Pax Renaissance are all incomplete. They're all like, look, Pax Renaissance is a daunting game. Allow me to go into excruciating detail about the simple things that are transparent from the rulebook. And all the complicated things, the one-shots and the ops, I'll just hand-wave those away and say, read up on those by yourself. Which is a, is a shocking a series of decisions editorially for video rules explanations. And I hope that this is not representative of the broader community of rules explanations. But then again, as I say, I don't really consume them, so I'm not in a position to comment. Anyway, that was Pax Renaissance. You and I got to play Praga Kaput Rigni. Designer designed by Vladimir Suchi and put out by Delicious Games. They are quite delicious. I ate some of the cubes. Very delicious. Well, it's full of eggs. That's for sure. It's so it show, So this is a game that's based on building the cathedral and a bridge and the hunger wall. And you do so with eggs, Mark, because eggs make it all come together. There's a bit of a historical controversy, actually. We'll get we'll get into the game in just a moment. But I actually looked it up because this was fascinating. The most valuable resource in Praga Kaput Regni. You can get money, sure. You can get stone, sure. You can get religious favor, sure. You can get royal favor, sure. The big ticket item, though, is eggs. Eggs is the big deal. It's it's like straight out of a John Waters movie. And I first of all, that's a bit strange. It's hard to get eggs. <laughs> They're expensive and rare. But the apparently there was some discussion that the, the bridge that spans the river in Prague what, which is now called the Charles Bridge, but for a long time it was just called the Prague Bridge, which is not exactly a, a, a stunning name. There was discussion about whether it was made with Bohemian mortar, which includes egg yolks to help bind things together, or Roman mortar, which is closer to what we actually make mortar out of today. And there's some controversy as to whether or not they're eggs. It, there, it's an urban legend that's been backed up by some studies, but other studies say, no, it didn't happen. Anyway, tell us about this game, Walker. Well, it's on a very busy board, Mark, but this is all compensated by the fact that you have these gorgeous three-dimensional like grandstands for the Hunger Wall and the Cathedral, and you have this great little player board with dials and, and a very colorful city where you get to build stuff and a nice little action board. There's a lot going on in this game, Mark, and there's a very uh, it's very easy to forget certain things because the game wants you to believe that you pick an action and that's all you do, but then there's modifiers to that action and then chain reaction, you know, 50 different things that are going to give you goods and or let you trade goods, and it's very easy to miss small things or, you know, victory points here and there. I commented when you were explaining the game and when the details started emerging that this was very, very much a Vladimir Suki kind of game. 
And if you played one of his designs, I'm not going to say you played them all. I don't get the overwhelming sense of sameness that I get from a lot of Feld designs. Like when you play Trajan, that's like the apotheosis, uh, to my mind, of Feld's point salady nonsense. And if you play Trajan, you don't need to play Luna and you don't need to play a lot of his point salady designs. But I've played, well, we played Underwater Cities not too long ago. There's Shipyard, which was my first experience with uh, Vladimir Sochi. And then there's my favorite of his, which is Pulsar 2849. But when you're explaining the rules, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this this is total Sochi design. Like, this this is definitely reminiscent. You're doing a whole lot of little things, and there's a lot of little details, and a lot of nested actions. And it's not quite point salad, but there's a lot going on. And you kind of have to focus on doing a subset of things. You can't do a little bit of everything like a point salad design would force you to do. Instead, you're like, well... I don't think that mechanism sounds very fun, and I know I'm not going to be able to do everything, so I'm just going to hive that off and just ignore it, which is more or less what we did. I ignored everything to do with the seals, and you, by contrast, paid a lot less attention to some of the other things that I was focusing in, and I enjoyed it. I enjoy, I've, I've enjoyed all of his designs, to be frank, and Pragakap Regni is another solid entrance into his catalog. The trick with his designs, though, is... I rarely want to play with large player counts because at that point, you know, just a whole series of, I mean, I find it interesting when I do an action, it chains off 17 other things, but there's not a whole heck of a lot of player interaction. And so I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Well, this is what I was going to ask you because you played so many of his other designs. So how much player interaction is there in his other designs? Because there's literally none in, in Kaput Rigney. Is there absolutely none? There's only the subtle influence of the action selection mechanism whereby if an action is unselected for a while, you're going to give victory points to somebody if they take it. But past that, I think you're... Oh, there's a tiny little bit of competition for the districts. Yeah, and you might there might be some timing with picking the actions. You know, you might someone might take the action that you need, but it's going to come around again, and there's definitely another action there that right. is just as good. The action drafting introduces a smidge, and the competition for districts, if you plan on using buildings, which some people won't, and if the right buildings are coming up, which they might not, and if it's the case that both of you decide to make a play for the districts, and at this point we're getting into a very strange set of, uh, then there's competition. But honestly, when you explain that element to me, it's like, well, if you have these resources available and you decide to build this very specific thing, I'm like, but the the supply of those types of buildings and my availability to actually deploy them is going to be very situational. So I don't want to compete in that. That sounds like asking for trouble. So I, uh, that was one of those things that I ignored. I deliberately ignored that possibility. Yeah, because all you're doing is helping the other players. If you're not if you're not uh, competing for it and you're just building it to get short term resources, then all you're doing is maybe helping the other players by you know finishing those plazas. As the immortal philosopher and scholar Ricky Bobby noted, if you're not first, you're last. Exactly. I'm not in a position to state definitively how much legs Praga Caput Regni has, but if past is any prologue, if it's like any of Suki's other designs. I'm going to enjoy it thoroughly for two to three plays, and past that, I'll be like, yeah, I've been there, done that, and not particularly interested to come back. It is very nice, visually, once you get past the busyness, once you're able to parse the the, the noise of what's going on, it is reasonably pleasant in that sense. And I, I have to say, there's something charming about having to desperately search for eggs. There's something, it's so bizarre that I actually, that it goes straight past thematically discordant and then straight on into kind of charming and cute. Yeah, and I really, I really like, there's some very physical parts of this game, because like we said, there's so much going on, you might forget that, you know, a turn has 
has passed, so it has a physical cube that drops into the wheel, so you can't turn it anymore to remind you that that round is over. And also the bonus that you get if you, you know, get so many ore or gold, the dial has actually physically stopped, so you know, well, if I turn it past this, then I get this bonus. So all of these things, very interesting and cool. I actually want to dwell on that for just half a second, because I think it's one of the most interesting uses of a physical gimmick I've seen, certainly in the Eurogame space, for many, many years. The action selection mechanism revolves around this dial that rotates and makes some actions more expensive and then less expensive as, as, as they're not taken. And there's literally a mechanism that exploits the double-layer board such that when the round ends, a round being a series of turns, there was a bit of discussion about this on Twitter, a round is a series of turns. A turn is not a series of rounds. Let us speak as adults. Let us be civilized about this. The round ends when the dial literally cannot be moved anymore because the cube has fallen down into the hole. So unlike Teotihuacan, for example, or unlike, I don't know why I'm picking on Daniela Tashini, or unlike Tzolkin, Tzolkin, there's all this thing about, now look, the round ends when this marker goes to this particular thing, and you have to be conscious of that, and yeah, there are markers and stickers, I'm not saying it's the easiest thing in the world to forget. But in Caput Regni, it's literally impossible because the dial will not move. It's wonderful. I was so I'm so charmed by that. There's a lot of charming details here. This is one there's, of the. It's like, and it's it's one of those like sort of uh, the artwork is sort of like one of those old picturesque things with all all these little. It makes the board very busy, but there's all sorts of little things going on in the board that are very interesting to see. Anyway, yeah, as I say, I'd be very surprised if I wanted to play Praga Caput Regni more than a couple more times. But I enjoyed my time with it. I don't think I'd be particularly keen to play it at max player count, because again, at that point, I think it would overstay its welcome. But for, for two to three players, especially given the, the negligible level of player interaction, I might want to see if it feels significantly different trying the stuff that I ignored. But for a game about building up lots of combos and trying to exploit weird income elements where I'm doing this action to get gold, but it's not really because I want the gold, but really because it triggers these other three powers that I have. It gets you and it gets you, look, anything that gets you eggs. Here's my pro strategy tip for Praga Caput Regni. Eggs in windows. I was about to say, that's, the, that's a very odd, usually throw eggs at windows. It's usually not this combo that you want. Is that what you normally do with eggs, Walker? Uh, no comment. Okay. <laughs> the last thing I want to say about. Oh, we totally need to retheme this about Devil's Night. It's true. The last thing I want to talk about with Praga Caput Regni is uh, the solo version. Uh, when you look in the rule book, it says, you know, you can go online to see, you know, these, you know, detailed solar rules. But to, to that, I say, why? Because they say, just do this. Take the action counter that's furthest along the dial and put it at the front. There. Solar person's done. <laughs> and you can go through a solo game in, in just like 30 minutes. And you don't have to go through all these, you know, intricate eight pages of rules and a side deck. And, oh, and that is Praga Kaput Rigni. I got to pull out an old favorite in its new skin, namely Agricola Revised Edition. I have not yet played the revised edition of Agricola. Agricola is still one of my top-tier all-time favorite worker placement games, second only probably to Tribune. I love how vicious it is. I love how cutthroat it is. Many, many worker placement games, perhaps more on this later. This is what's known as a conditional spoiler. Don't really lean into player interaction at all, and work. So the worker placement itself doesn't feel like really core element of the game. It just feels like sometimes just a lazy way to distribute resources. But Agricola doesn't do that because of how incredibly cutthroat it is to take an action, even when one of your actions is I'm gonna take this wood, and then suddenly everyone else at the table is throwing their hands up in disgust because you've completely, in Walker's terms, euchred them. 
And the revised edition doesn't really change anything of substance. It mostly is just a question of curating the available card sets because in the base game of Agricola, or rather in the first cycle of Agricola, there's endless series of card decks and expansions and so forth. And some of the terminology had gotten out of hand and some of the card effects hadn't been properly explained. And so this was just an opportunity for them to do a redo of the cards. Yeah, plus it's like translation on top of translation, right, at that point. Right. And I have to say that I was very pleased with the card sets with one exception. The revised edition of Agricola, if you are going to be playing solo or with two players, does not have nearly enough cards available for it in the based game. You're still going to see a lot of variety, but one of the great things about Agricola, and one of the things that really elevates it, is just the sheer overwhelming variety of occupations and improvements that are available. And honestly, with just the based game, you're going to start seeing repeats after your second game. Which is not unforgivable, it just seems like an unfortunate waste, especially when compared to the, the original version. And so, I would suggest getting a deck or two, the, when they have the A, B, and C expansions and so forth, and they all just have a whack of new cards. And even one will, will give you tremendous, tremendous variety, and I recommend them wholeheartedly. Anyway, I played a two-player game with Dr. Hansen, we masked up and played Agricola. He, uh, he smacked me around like I stole something, largely because I couldn't get any wood to save my life. <laughs> Well, you see, you, you, you fell into a, a, a sort of a lion's den there because this is a family game for him where he competes with his brothers. <laughs> so that involves like brutal cutthroat mastery of an Agricola game. So I, I think you sort of you sort of walked into a cave there. Well, I have played Agricola with him before. Maybe it was the two player experience specifically where, where his, his natural fraternal instincts, namely his cutthroat fraternal instincts triggered. I don't know. Anyway, no, but it was great. I, as I say, I love how cutthroat it is. I love how desperate you are for resources because again, when there's this level of tightness, it means that the placement matters and blocking somebody is really consequential. And the scarcity of resources really makes the timing consequential because Agricola does this great thing about resource accumulation. And so you start wondering, eh, do I have to go for it now or will my opponent go for the suboptimal action now? Plus, on top of that, you get to build this combo from the ground up in terms of your occupations and your improvements. And you get to ha and you have to exercise the very, very difficult judgment of, well, this card is great once these other four cards are out in play, but should I take it or not? Because there's a whole bunch of different ways you can decide to put out your cards. Anyway, I adore Agricola. It's been out for a long time. The revised edition was very, very neat. It's also interesting to look at Agricola's components just in terms of the evolution of Eurogames. I remember, this is going to be a little bit of reminiscing here, I remember when Agricola was first released in 2006, where only some editions had the wooden animals. The rest were cubes. And now, that would be considered unforgivable. At the time, it was amazing. People were losing their heads. It had little shaped animals in a Euro game. Imagine that. And now, 15 years later, it would be unforgivable for any game, let alone Agricola, to have anything other than sculpted everything. <laughs> True. If you, don't have a, if you don't have a real sheep and just a white cube, that, that's not right. Yeah, cubes are almost unheard of now, except as trackers. And even then, they're often not used as trackers anymore. This is not me regretting. I'm not, I'm not waxing about the purity of the old days. With one possible exception, uh, I don't think I could ever get used to playing El Grande with meeples. El Grande, I think, needs to be played with cubes. Past that, this is not a get-off-my-lawn moment. I'm just commenting that I find it interesting to note how the market has shifted. The yeah, the tower would not just would not be the same with meeples. See, that that's one of my concerns. But anyway, that was my experience with the revised edition of Agricola. You and I revisited Marvel United by Andrea Cavrecio and Eric Lang, put out by Simon Games. 
And I, I liked our second play, or your second play, better than my third play. Or, sorry, not better than my third play, better than my second play. <laughs> Wait, I'm losing track third, here. How many nine, times have I played this I, game? You played it Who twice. are you? Where am I? I played it three times. Okay. It had the same, I don't want to say like Sentinels, but I mean, it, it felt as though which character you played mattered. At first, I didn't think it really mattered, but uh, versus the particular villain we had where the tasks, you needed certain symbols, and I felt the two characters that we picked leaned heavily into those two symbols, so I think I'm I'm not sure if it was actually the case or it just happened to get be lucky card draw off the beginning. More games will will let us know, but I felt that game did much better than your first play. So we didn't play against the Red Skull. We played against the Taskmaster. I'm sure to someone who consumes more comics than I do, this will mean something. But I, I, I too preferred this play, although I, I, I'm loath to invoke numbers because I think I would then get very, very confused. And I think what you're talking about is just the byproduct of how incredibly light and card-driven the game is. We talked about this afterwards. One of the key differences between Sentinels and Marvel United is, among many other things... In Sentinels, characters have at least a core character card that will give them a power they have access to. And indeed, variant versions of the heroes have different versions of that key power. And that can have a huge impact, even though they're playing with the same deck that they would otherwise play in Sentinels of the Multiverse. And villains in Sentinels have a standard uh, thing they do every turn independently of their deck. And again, there are promo versions that, that, that change that up. In Marvel United, all there is are the cards. It's just purely the cards and the card effects although not terribly varied, can have a tremendous impact on what you need to do. If all you're drawing are uh, fist and quest results and you desperately need to move across the map, well, guess what? There's not a whole heck of a lot you can do, which is fine. It's a, tw- it's a 20 to 30 minute, incredibly light game. And I don't, I didn't mind the fact that uh, terribly when we played against Red Skull, it was just a series of card flips to say, guess what? You lose. And that's all right. Fine. It, it's a quick setup, uh, easy, light thing. I don't get a tremendous sense of personality out of it, which is not necessarily a huge problem unless you want to really get into the theme. I think that the bones are there to do some more interesting stuff. I'm actually vaguely curious about some of the alternate scenarios that they're, that, that is coming out in the expansions and some of the Kickstarter exclusives. Maybe some of the characters will be a little bit more weird. Maybe they might introduce a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit more asymmetry in terms of the card effects, but basically you're just playing around with a small set of icons, doing a relatively small set of tasks, and that's okay. It, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a filler weight to me, and if we ever played a setup that didn't significantly increase the variety, but increased the length of 45 minutes to an hour, at that point I think I'd say that the system has overstayed its welcome. Oh, for sure. And trying to do something that it, sh- that it shouldn't try to do. So as it stands, it's something I'm perfectly willing to pull out given how short it is, and primarily given how short it is, and I'm vaguely curious whether they're going to do anything with the system, because honestly, uh, I have a certain degree of faith in Eric Lang and Andrea Caravesio that they have the ability to play and iterate with ideas like this. Whether they have done so, I don't know, and I'm curious to see. That was Marvel United. Played the published version of Under Falling Skies. This was the nine-card print-and-play game released last year and won a whole bunch of awards as well as it deserved. I tried the pl- print-and-play version. I messed up the rules very, very badly. The published version has been put out by CGE. This is Both versions were designed by Tomás Ulish. I apologize for my pronunciation. And initially, I just thought that they were going to be putting it out with better components. And honestly, when I saw the price tag, I thought that that's all that they were doing, and I would have been perfectly happy with that. But they've introduced a quote-unquote campaign that is mostly just a way to shovel a whole bunch of different scenarios at you. 
to ver- to issue subtle variations on how the game works on top of how the base game base game the print and play already had ability to tailor the difficulty that you wanted in terms of just altering the tracks to make things more difficult. Under Falling Skies is a solo game in which you are using dice to repel an alien invasion. There's a sort of very Space Invaders type effect of ships descending on your base. You have, at its heart, only a very small number of things that you can do with your, di- your dice. That every time you allocate a die, and all the alien ships under that column advance that number of spaces. And then, uh, like every good dice game, there are a couple of reroll elements where you can try to finesse what kind of dice you want. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's a 10 to 15 minute long game, realistically, where you have genuine trade-offs and some risk elements. And the work on the scenarios thus far has been very impressive. I played a couple different scenarios. One of them gave me the opportunity to save one of two possible cities across the world. And it tells you very specifically that whatever city you don't go defend gets destroyed by the aliens. One of them was Rio de Janeiro, and the other was Montreal. So I'm very sorry. I'm sorry, Rio. (laughs) Just, I hope this doesn't hurt us uh, with with the, with the greater Portuguese-speaking world, but uh, Rio didn't make it, because uh, it was kind of inevitable. And even the scenario was kind of cute. There was this notion that uh, civilians weren't staying in their shelters, they were going out onto the streets, and that made the city more vulnerable unless you were able to then go save the civilians. So naturally, this being Montreal, I assume this happened during the summer, during festival season, and everyone tells them the aliens are coming, the aliens are invading, and the citizens of, of Montreal were like, yeah, but, uh, I, I, I get what you're saying, but, uh, you know... Just Bourrier and the Jazz Festival, um, I think I'm going to go outside. And so, <laughs> made perfect sense to me. And I've been having a great time with Under Falling Skies. I'm eager to see what the future uh, scenarios have. Not in any sort of overarching campaign way, but just in the way that they've chosen to dole out new scenarios and new special abilities. Quite frankly, it's pitched at just the right level of campaign that what I want now, namely just here's some more content coming out. Slowly, And even if you want to, they, they say specifically in the rulebook, if you're not interested in playing the campaign, you just want access to all this stuff, whatever, just pull it all out. Here are all the scenarios available. Pick a scenario you want, pick a special character, whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah, much like the crew, right? You just use the exact same thing, but just lets you tweak, play around with the rule set a little bit. Absolutely. And so I have to say that this is a very, very impressive package. If you've never done solo gaming before, I'd have to say that this and One Deck Dungeon by Chris Cheslick of as many games are great examples of how to do light campaign elements if you want, but not to force it down people's throats, and have very, very interesting dice trade-offs in a very small, a smart, small, compelling package. And I'm very, very pleased with the retail version. I'm glad of the extra content they've added. And Under Falling Skies is a real treat. You and I return to Court of Miracles, and this is just becoming continues to please throughout the majority of the game. I'm wondering if it's slowly falling apart at the end. I'm wondering if there's a little bit of, maybe not, I don't want to say much kingmaking, but if you don't know exactly how the game's going to play out, either you're stopping someone from winning and letting someone else win, or it's getting a little fiddly at the end. Yeah, I think the key problem with Court of Miracles isn't so much the kingmaking elements per se, because there's a fair amount of that. It's, to, to, to me, I would actually blame the luck of the card draw. Because there's a very small number of resources in Court of Miracles, basically money and cards. And the cards range from situationally useful to cinching the, the, the game end, to situationally useful for general utility, all the way to situationally useless. For example, in the game that we most recently, play, uh, recently played, I regularly drew the card that says, take money from everyone who has more points out than you. 
which is fine. It's 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 a crude catch up mechanism. Uh, but I was never in a position to use it. I I uh, th- this in total got me one dollar once, and so I had expended all this energy to get these cards. Meanwhile, you pulled the card you needed to sense the end game. And again, this is a very very brief confrontational game, and so I don't object to that necessarily. It's just when there's that parsimony of resources, and one of them being the card deck, is a little all over the place. And it starts to get a little bit problematic for the end game because the very end game, as you, as you identify, is who can get over the finish line at the right time. Some of your resources are vulnerable, some of your points are vulnerable, and some of your points are not. And that is why it's very, very good to sock in all the non-vulnerable points as early as possible and then try to make that final push while people are trying to stop you. And it's that moment, the final push when other people are trying to stop you, where things can go a little bit wonky and they're just exacerbated by the cards. And that's okay-ish. Yeah, which is too bad because the whole game by itself is very uh, nice, puzzly. I love trying to figure out how to manipulate the cards, like you just talked about with the with the board actions and and making the king move around and trigger certain you know districts when you need them. And I like how that puzzly bit works. Yeah, most of the timing elements in Court of Miracles are great. Can I move the king to trigger the evaluation in this district? When either nobody's there, so my position isn't threatened, or when I'm the only one there, so I get it on the cheap. That part's wonderful. The part that isn't wonderful is, well, I'm one piece away from winning, so everyone's coming after me, so all my vulnerable bits are going to get bumped off. And as again, going back to the cards, there are a whole bunch of cards that effectively you can't defend against in anything other than, say, a two-player game, because the, the, the card in question that keeps coming up, not just in the end game, but all throughout the game, is resolve a conflict when there are two pieces in the district which disrupts the timing to such an extent that it is so easy to snake something out from somebody. And if you're the one who currently controls a district, you cannot defend yourself against this card, except by having one particular piece, placing it in a suboptimal place, and always triggering it. Which is just, uh, at that point, there's just, you can't defend yourself all over the place. So it's fluid and dynamic for much of the game, and then the end game, it becomes its dynamism kind of works against it. This is kind of like the same dynamic that one has in Cosmic Encounter, where, or even Antica. Like, there are lots of different games where it's about, can someone stop me from getting across that final finish line step? But in those other games, it's not as determined by this weird deck of cards. So I, I enjoy the game, I would happily play it again, but I don't think it's quite top tier purely by virtue of the fact that, you know, for the, for 30 minutes of a 45-minute game, it's great, and then the last 10 to 15 can get a little wonky. Yep. And who's it designed by, Mark? Court of Miracles was designed by Vincent Brugias and Guilhem Gautrin. And it's published by Lumberjack Studio. Similarly, another LFG or Little French game we played again was Nadavalier by Serge Lagette. And I, too, think it has similar problems to the Court of Miracles in that The first half of the game, I think, is wonderful. The first half of the game is great. You're jockeying for having more of a certain kind of card than everybody else because you're really competing for those mid-game bonuses, which can be very, very consequential. You're desperately scrabbling to get your first hero. You're desperately sometimes scrabbling to get your second hero. You're in these low-margin fights where every card you take is super consequential, and simultaneously you're scrabbling to include your currency because this is a blind-bidding game where everyone starts with the the same coins, but the coins get upgraded through this very, very novel and interesting way. And then the second half of the game kicks in. And then I start enjoying the game a lot less. For one thing, everyone's coins are different now, and so the competition becomes less tight. You'll see, you'll very often see bidding rounds where it's like, I bid 23. Well, I bid 7. I bid 1. It's like, okay. 
<laughs> Clearly that shakes out. And the person in seven, uh, who bid 7 didn't really care much, and the person who bid 1 didn't really care much, and the person who bid 23 definitely did care, and that's all fine. But it's no longer as tight in that sense. Yeah, it seems just very procedural after the, the mid-game point. Yeah, and everyone's just working on getting their triangular score bonus. You know, somebody's like, well, I, I just want as many greens as I can, because every subsequent green is worth getting more points. And you know, you're not really fighting as hard for that last hero. In the first half of the game, you're looking over and saying, ah, oh, if Walker gets that red card, he's going to get his first hero already. I don't really want it, but I should take it from him. And that's great. But by the end of it, everyone's tableaus are big enough, and they've got what they need. It's not that the second half is boring, it's just it's considerably less engaging, considerably less tight. The interaction feels a little, uh, feels to be of less quality. And overall, it just, it ends with a whimper rather than with a bang. I think it will work a lot better in a, you know, in a family setting, you know, less gaming it out like, like we would. And so I think it just, it, work, it would work a lot better in a different atmosphere. Yeah, it's disappointing because the first half is of such quality. It's it's really rules light. It's really quick. The art I really enjoy. Uh, I'm a sucker for anything even vaguely Norse. I'm I, I'm so enthusiastic about Norse theming that I'll even accept dwarves, which I normally am not a fan of in fantasy contexts. And the Davalier moves along at such a great clip, and then that mid-game evaluation happens. Like, all right, let's get to the second half of the game, and then you're like, mm, okay, now I feel like I'm filling out a point spreadsheet, and the interaction goes down. And this is despite the fact that you did one of your patented Walker rethemings, or rather renaming. We couldn't remember the names of the three places where you go to bid. It's like the Dancing Goblin and like the Prancing Horse or something. But no, it's Disco Goblin, Metal Dragon, and Hard Rock Horse. Exactly, which is perfect. Makes it so much more fun. I knew it was brilliant even before I noticed that the goblin was clearly wearing bell-bottoms. And that is Nadavalier. Mark, guess what? Last Aurora, not fake news, because you saw it and you played it. Last Aurora came in, so we got to try it. This is a post-apocalyptic racing game where where winter is coming again, and no one will survive this winter, Mark. This this one's going to be a bad one. Is it the last one? This is the last winter. Oh. It's, it's going to be bad. And the icebreaker is is crashing through, through, and it's going south. It's going to save everyone, but for who's this? Everyone, everyone, Mark, just everyone, everyone who makes it to the boat, which, everyone uh... who makes it to the boat, and and we were lucky enough to make sure that we we're very far from the boat. So we hop in our trucks, hook up the trailer, and off we go to try to catch the boat before it leaves. Walker, yes, Mark, my love for you is like a truck. So I enjoyed this game. I love almost any post-apocalyptic game, especially when you can upgrade your stuff. You had talked about it, and I'm 100% am on your page about there's a, a distinct and definite turn order problem. There was some talk about it in the forums. It says, well, if, if uh, you can't kill any enemies, then concentrate on your speed and movement, and then you'll get ahead, and then you'll be able to start shooting some enemies. And to that, I say, design your game better. <laughs> yeah, there's a definite problem in that whoever is in first place, and this happened pretty much the entire second half of our game, can murder everybody. Can murder all the enemies that show up, and then nobody else gets, gets a crack at dealing with them. And this is a compounding problem, because killing enemies is the best way to get upgrades for your vehicle, which means you're going to go faster and hit harder going forward. And it's just this compounding snowball effect. It's all well and good to say, oh, well, the person who's who's in behind just go faster next time. 
But when the person who's ahead lucks into the faster truck anyway, well, that's pretty much the ballgame. The game is is perfectly pleasant. In Last Aurora, there's this drafting element, and then there's this really, really difficult resource management element, which is very tight. You have to worry about having enough gas. You don't feed your workers here. I mean, there's there's food to feed your workers, but that's not the upkeep requirement. The upkeep requirement is getting enough gas so your truck can move everywhere. Mark, you got to get to the boat. You gotta get it's to the all boat. about the gas. It's all about the gas. Absolutely. It's about the gasoline. Just walk away. Anyway, my, sorry. I should not do my Lord Humongous impression. Uh, it would not be very good. Uh, and I don't think Lord Humongous would do very well in icy climates. His uh, his wardrobe is definitely more desert desert bonded chic than, yeah. Yes. But the drafting part is very nice. The art style is vaguely reminiscent to me of another post-apocalyptic game, namely Flotilla. Flotilla, one of the key assets to Flotilla is that all these cards have these lovely pictures, very well rendered, of all these various people that you might recruit. And Last Aurora, although a different aesthetic, it's it's much more with the sort of, you know, winter has come and everyone's going to die, rather than, eh, well, you know, there's all this water everywhere aesthetic. But the characters look great. You get to build your convoy with little cards with lovely artwork and, well, lovely, grim artwork, and, and everything is rusted over, and that part's great. Honestly, uh, but a lot of the game feels a little bit procedural, and then there's the the grim fact that much of your success is about killing enemies, and you're not going to get there unless you're in the lead. So, eh, it's a rich-get-richer problem, hardcore, and uh, that was my my key problem with Last Aurora. Yeah, the fuel bit is a is a problem as well. I like I understand that, you know, post apocalyptic movies, it's always about the petrol and you always need gas and it makes sense that it's the most, you know, necessary resource, but it just started to feel like a, you know, feed your workers type thing and it's always, you know, fighting to get it and it seemed to see seemed to be your whole turn was worrying about gas instead of, you know, enjoying the game. Right. And especially when we saw how valuable the loot was, it was just basically you need to get a certain amount of gas and you need to get a certain amount of bullets. That's your primary job in getting out of the drafting phase. And the way the drafting phase works is it, I was initially intrigued, but it ended up being a little bit tedious for me. Namely, there's the card that you're drafting and there's also every slot has a benefit associated with it. We seem to be falling into these games all over, all, all over the place. Court of Miracles, Title Blades, all these things. Where, well, you do an action, but there's also this global modifier that applies. And sometimes it works fine. And sometimes in Last Aurora, it's kind of a safety valve because... Maybe there aren't any resources available. Maybe the only thing available in the tableau this round is some personnel that you don't want to recruit because you don't have room, and some enemies, and a couple of weird events. And there's no way to get fuel. It's like, okay, we'll just print fuel on the board, and every time someone can go there, they can take damage and get a fuel. Okay. But a lot of the time, that was the only way to get those crucial resources. And I, it made the cards feel less interesting. And overall, I just felt like I was just going through the motions of, I need to get my one fuel and my couple bullets, and there we go. Oh, look, somebody else is ahead of me anyway. I guess I'm not going to be fighting this turn. And all, yes, and all, like I said, I did enjoy it. I felt the rule, the rule book was a little odd and was missing some key things. I think for people who were, say, new to the hobby, I know for us, we'd be, we could easily glaze over certain things and figure them out quite easily. But I think for someone who was, say, this is their first or second board game, they would have a lot of trouble with this book. But other than that, I am looking forward to giving it another try because I just love the theme. And that is Last Aurora, published by Pendragon Game Studio. Designed by Mauro Kiabato. Got to play a game I've been meaning to try for some years. This is Evolution Climate. This was actually mentioned frequently in the Guild in our discussion of Tableau Builders. 
And Evolution's been out for almost 10 years now, and Evolution Climate's been out for almost five years now, which is kind of the, uh, what's, what's the word for something that's like, it's similar, but it's changed, it's added things, it's, um... Old dirt. Okay. Evolved? That was the joke. Uh, yeah, I know, but I, I made you have to work for it. <laughs> can't just... Can't just hand it, yeah. Yeah, don't want to, don't want it to go straight to my head. I enjoyed it, it was fun, and it had lots of personality. I have some concerns. Let me focus on the personality, first of all. And let me just focus on something that's that's truly bizarre. The game comes with two player aids. On the back of the player aids, it says, this is the scientific nomenclature for all the special traits that your your animals can get. One of them is Latinate terms that you might find in zoology. And the other one is a series of jokes. And there is nothing on the player aids to differentiate one from the other other than actually the descriptions. It was adorable and amazing. It was adorable and amazing. You were like, ah, my carnivore was a num-num chunko. And I'm like... <laughs> That's very clever of you, Walker, but that's not what it says on the player aid because I'd only seen the other player. Like, no, 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 it says right here. It's a num num chunko. I'm like, damn it, he's right. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful, lovely little flourish, and you do get to have little animal species with genuine personality. I, for example, had this not terribly successful but very specialized animal that was a burrowing animal with a long neck who could forage, and it was so perfectly adapted to the environment. That every round, with no effort, it was able to feed itself perfectly, and no predators could get at it. It would just feed itself before the feeding phase started because of its long neck. It got an extra food because it was a forager, and because it was burrowing, after it was not hungry anymore, it was immune from predation. So it was perfect. It was lovely, it was thematic, it was nice, it was a nice little combo. And then there are the carnivores who eat other animals. They don't deal with all that plant stuff. And that's where the game starts to show some of its creaks, because this notion of who can eat whom. And that drives a lot of the card play. Well, I need to play this card so it can predate better, or I need to play this card on my other species so it's more defended. And at this point, you have two options. You can either play the game with the rules as written, where everybody plays their cards in sequence, face down. So I, as a carnivore, could look over at the, the animal that I've been predating on the past couple rounds and say, ah, they've played another trait. wonder what that trait might be. Better up my game and play some cards in response to that. Or maybe even make my carnivore not a carnivore anymore. Things like that. And then I think the game would take far too long. The alternative is to play the way we did, which is effectively simultaneous play. And there, we would presage each eating segment with, okay, so my animal can eat the following things. Everyone disclosed to me what is able to be eaten by this animal. We all have the great discussion once more about what animal can eat what. And that's fine, and the game moved along at a decent clip, and that period of disclosure was a good point of contact for, for everyone to keep abreast of what, what other animals had, had been changing. But it was definitely less cut and thrust of, I need to play this card in response to somebody else. It was more just, I have this strange animal, look at what it can do. Which is fine, it was like show and tell. It was like an elaborate, elaborated show and tell. Exactly, it was like, uh, can you climb? No. Uh, can you ambush? No. Uh, well, dang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the mud. <laughs> yes. And, and it, was, it was fine, it was very enjoyable. I would happily play again. Uh, but I think that with repeated playings, that that difficulty of do I make it take longer than I want it to be, or do we just have a series of weird surprises that that the the suboptimality of both of those elements might start to grate. And then there was the climate element. We had a strange draw where we had the two most harsh climate events pulled right off the top of the game, and as a result, all of us were very loath to move the climate very far one way or the other. No one really, and this 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 would be especially common on the first play was willing to be like, all right, I'm going to make sure that all my species are adapted to either incredible heat or incredible cold, and I'm going to push that climate as hard 
as I can and murder everyone else. That might have been interesting. Incredibly punishing. Mass extinction is very forgi- is rarely very forgiving. Uh, but as a result, we only saw very, very gentle and mild uh, climate operations. And again, when played in a cutthroat way, I'm not terribly confident that the game would survive without feeling very, very arbitrary and kind of capricious. So suffice to say, I see why evolution climate has its detractors, because a lot of people hate evolution and evolution climate. And I know I, I, a lot of people I respect really loathe the game, and I have no difficulty imagining the game going completely off the rails. But, I mean, my first play was perfectly pleasant, and if it were put in front of my face again, I'd happily play it again. Yeah, now that I hear you talking, I understand, you know, because it was I think it was the very first round where I said, well, can't we just all do this at the same time? And that's what we did. And now that I think of it, if we actually did play by the rules, it would be awfully painful. Well, you had played the base evolution. And yes, so, so long ago that I don't remember what the differences would be. I know there's definitely, there was no climate, of course. But right. other than that, I'm not sure what the differences were. And you remember not liking it. Exactly. Yes. As I say, a lot of people have very strong reactions to it. I found it delightful and charming, but as far as a genuine game experience, I have my doubts. But as I say... I'd happily play it again if the circumstance were presented to me, and if so, we'll report back. It was published by North Star Games. Those were the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Ginkopolis, Mark, it's one step closer to being published so other people can play this fantastic game. It supposedly will be out in stores very soon. Sure. So Checks uh, in the mail. Checks in the mail. Title Blades uh, any day now. I would line up at the door tomorrow and pick it up. Well, both Ginkopolis and the big box of Hansa Teutonica, two Euro games that we're both big fans of. I mean, I don't think Ginkopolis is as good as Hansa Teutonica, but they've both been, you know, people clamored for a reprint and the publisher said there's going to be a reprint. And uh, I mean, it's not like there's some global pandemic going on or something. Exactly. That's Ginkopolis. Check it out. Maybe we should play it this week so we can talk about it. I don't have my copy anymore. <gasps> a listener wanted it, so I gave it to them. Okay. So we've talked a number of times before on the podcast about the habit of often but not always German game designers just deciding to make a game about some indigenous people of the Americas and completely getting it wrong. I am thus very, very pleased to announce that there is a game being pu- that has been published by somebody who lives in Nunavut, an actual Inuit person designing a, a board game about Inuit people. So there you go. Uh, we don't necess- we don't object to cultural appropriation necessarily on its face, we, but we do object when people from outside cultures do the manifest disrespect of being lazy and sloppy about presenting other people's cultures. And probably we're going to get a perspective on Inuit culture that we would not get from someone who lives in Germany, as opposed to somebody who lives in Nunavik, which is the, the case here. So the game is called Nunami. It is billed as the first Inuit board game. I'm willing to take that at face value. It might or might not be. That means on the land in Anuktitut. It was designed by Tomasi Manjiok, uh, who lives in Nunavik. A copy is going to be coming in, and uh, we'll let you know about it when we get it. It looks to be a uh, charming, hexagonal-based, triangular card sort of area majority contest thing. I'm sure there is going to be some sort of explanation about how it is a representative of something or other, and uh, maybe or maybe not. Maybe that will manifest, maybe not. But I'm, I, for one, am very, very keen to see how it plays out. And that is Nanami. Well, since we're talking about Canadian things, I'm going to skip ahead to the the transcontinental, and it's about uh, 
a giant railway that was built in Canada in 1871. It, it was the railroad that went from east to west and completely changed how our our country acted and or did business. Ad mare usque ad mare. It's and our now, national slogan. It means from sea to sea. It's from sea to sea. Yeah. I knew that. <laughs> and now there's going to be a game about it. There's not many train games. That I know sometimes Canada is represented, like they'll put Toronto and or Montreal. On there's the only one train game that I know of. It's called Ticket to Ride. Gotcha. Uh, it's got a detailed economic model. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. There are 18 versions of it, which is why it's called 18XX. Gotcha. Yeah. You're going to get a lot of hate mail. All to Air Canada. I don't know what you're talking about. People love Ticket to Ride. Train gamers play Ticket to Ride, right? They wouldn't call themselves train gamers if they weren't devoted to Ticket Look, to Ride. Look, I don't even like train games, and you're making me angry. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the Transcontinental. We'll file this one under eventually hell does freeze over. This is, I guess we could call this the title blades category. Aliens Another Glorious Day in the Core was announced by Gale Force 9, and they were breezing past potential release dates like crazy even before the pandemic hit. They were going to have gameplay previews that never manifested, and there were going to be pre-order windows that never opened, and people started to wonder if it was vaporware. But sure enough, people actually have Aliens Another Glorious Day in the Core in their hands. And similarly, much like Nanami, a copy is on its way to us, and we will let you know about it when we get it. We are, of course... In Canada, and this is also can also be filed under another long-running segment of this podcast, which is Screw You Canada. Some Americans have their copies, some Brits have their copies, but we'll get ours when we get ours. It's a Kiwi company, so I guess I can't oh, I can't yeah. be too surprised. I'm sure that the, the game dog sled will show up soon. Sushi boat, Mark. We love cool little dexterity. There's not this is not much of a dexterity game, but cool little intricate moving parts. This is like a, it looks like it's a sushi conveyor belt type game where, where these discs are going to slide around this track and the back part of the track is covered. So they're going to, you know, it's going to cycle along and it's going to cover up some of the, some of the dishes as they go through. So you're not going to know what they are and they're going to come out the other end. And, and much like in, in Japan, I'm sure in other, in other countries where they have big sushi places, they have this as well, but they're different colored plates, which so I'm sure it makes them different prices. And I'm interested to see how this works. I want to check it out. It's a game called Sushi Boat. And last two quick things for me. All I have to say is Fist of the North Star. Fist of the North Star, Mark. It's got to be great. It's going to be the greatest <laughs> game of all time. Oh, Much like Cowboy Bebop was, you know, was was an intricate staple that, that changed the face of gaming. Fist of the North Star will be the next pillar. I just can't wait to see what it's going to be when it comes out. This is so petty. There's something about the way hair was represented in anime of that era. I just can't get past it. <laughs> Everyone had the giant Elvis hair. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. What a great movie. But anyway. <laughs> well, it wasn't a movie. It was like 17 million different things. A, yeah. a manga with 74 volumes and three TV shows and a whole bunch of movies. And, and there's a live action, too. There, there's, a, there's a term used by a friend of ours called genre vertigo. This is where you might think, oh, I'm curious about this thing. How does one get into it? You go to either the Wikipedia page or something, and then you see the massive amounts of quantity there is for a certain thing, and then you experience this tilting sensation that makes you so intimidated you back away slowly. And lastly, it's kind of sad but good, you know, because they keep supporting Warhammer Underworlds. There's another big box coming out for it called Dire Chasm, and it's unfortunate that we don't have more time to play it. And the fact that all the cards that I have, anyway, are out of date. But most of them, I think, are illegal, actually. More than likely. <laughs> but I'm just glad that 
Games Workshop lately has this, you know, tendency to like drop something and or not support it and or just go on to something else that'll make them more money. It's it's nice to see them constantly updating this and bringing out more stuff for it. I'm very pleased that this, the series is continuing. And if there were a local community that were seriously interested in continuing to play it, I would probably go to the effort of, you know, maintaining decks and sorting things out and looking at new cards. Still a great system, just it's kind of moved past us. And that is all the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the feature game of the week, which is Beyond the Sun. Beyond the Sun was designed by Dennis K. Chan and published by Rio Grande Games. First off, in disclosure, I knew Dennis socially when I lived in Boston. I once had barbecue with him while he expressed the view that there was no such thing as American cuisine. I once again defy anyone to produce such precise disclaimers anywhere in cultural criticism. At any rate, uh, this is his first published design. I never played the prototype, even though it was uh, played in, in lots of circles that I was acquainted with in Boston. Why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Beyond the Sun? Well, Beyond Beyond the Sun, something, something, nuclear war, something, something, humanity bands together to form a new planet somewhere else, space travel, something, something. All right. So, <laughs> Beyond the Sun is an action selection worker placement? Yeah. All right, where you can only choose actions that you've researched and you have to keep a steady supply of population, which is pilots or scientists, and or or. You have to keep a balance of science and military so you can take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves and always be pushing towards those endgame goals because the game is going to be over before you know it. I agree with you that I can't really call it a worker placement game without qualification because you only have one worker. And it's just moving around all over the place. Unlike a lot of worker placement games with only one worker, the key culprit of this genre is Le Havre, where you only have one worker, but then your worker can just sit there somewhere, just exogenously while you're doing other things independently. At least here, you're obligated to move every turn. And it's not quite action selection, because by selecting it, you block every day, so it's kind of a worker, but you've only got one, so it's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit of a toss-up. And your the tech tree determines your available spaces. And this is one of its key hooks, because in a game like Agricola, the available workers, uh, the available worker spaces do develop over the course of the game, but it's just every round a new card gets flipped up, and that's what everyone has access to. Whereas in Beyond the Sun, at the start of the game, everyone has access to the same core basic technologies, and any other spaces you want to be able to go to, you have to research, which actually uh, addresses my... One of, one of my key concerns whenever I talk about a worker placement game or something like that, how much blocking is involved. And is it quality blocking or just accidental blocking? Well, here you might end up getting blocked, but it's probably because most of the time somebody else researched that tech first. So if you want tempo on everybody else, if you want to make sure that you have first crack at an action space and therefore on average have more cracks at it than everybody else, you would best be pushing the envelope in terms of research. Yeah, that covers a couple points that I had is the fact that the player interaction, I think there's definitely some blocking going on. Like the colonize action is, is fairly popular and was blocked. And you're also fighting over the planets and they work in an interesting way. You know, yeah, if, and cause you don't have to, there's not like crazy combat. You don't have to worry about rolling dice or having, it's, you know, do I have more value there than somebody else? Yes. And then do, can I colonize it before somebody moves ships there? It's not bad, and it's also the racing towards the achievements, because some of the achievements have a limited number of spaces. It's not as though everyone can do them, so it's a, that's also some player interaction as well. And I do want to uh, bounce back to the tech tree, because like you said, 
you're trying to get there before anybody else. So there's going to be an event card that flips up and you might get a small Benny and everyone else gets something else. But now you are the only one that gets to go there. So someone has to waste a turn. Not, I don't, shouldn't say waste. Someone has to spend a turn to research a tech, which because now they want that one. And then now they can go to that space. So you've had a turn to, to go there once and or do something else while they're researching it. And then now you go there after they've researched it and block it. So I think that's a very interesting, you know, intermix and gameplay there. I agree. So, so turning back to this colony board. So there's the tech tree and then there's the sideboard, which is the various planets that you could colonize. And most of the time, there are very, very, very rare exceptions. Most of the time in order to colonize a planet, which tends to give you a large quantity of points and a significant shot in your arm for your economic production, more on that later, you have to set it up for one turn and then later on be able to colonize it. And so it is kind of like having to set up a combo and giving everyone a turn to mess with you because the ability to move ships is very common. Everyone has the ability to move ships more or less at any time with varying degrees of efficiency. Colonization, on the other hand, requires a significant investment militarily and some uh, some time to set up. And I think that's that's great because once the colonization happens, those points are banked and can never be messed with ever again. Whereas the more transient control of a system is less remunerative but on the other hand is easier to take care of and is not as expensive to do. And so there's a bit of a trade-off between do I want to cripple my long-term military standing in the system by colonizing this thing early and do I want to spend those resources or am I more happy with just letting my fleet be large and having the more situational transient benefits from having just control as opposed to outright colonization. And that trade-off I thought was among a lot of other trade-offs in the game rather satisfying. Yeah, because you could sometimes you could key it up with the abilities that were in the card because you got a special ability when you colonized it, you got another ability when you had control of it and you got to put out more production dials that let you know let you get more population and or or all of these trade-offs were very interesting. It was like sort of this balance that you had to keep all the time. Absolutely. And and on that topic of balance and trade-off very satisfyingly, we commented after the first time we played Beyond the Sun, I was curious as to whether it would play out differently in future games. Because in the first game we played, the colonization board was definitely determinative. The person who won, won because they had colonized more planets and they had gotten significant benefit from that. And in further games, that has not been the case. Not necessarily. It has recurred, but it has not always been necessarily the case. Because any time you're paying attention to that board you're probably slipping behind on research, and vice versa. And there's a kind of a self-balancing element there. The more people fight over the systems, the less remunerative it becomes to fight over the systems. And so that encourages people to break from the pack and focus on technology, and they might be able to make a significant win there. And I really, really like how dynamic that makes the game feel, despite the fact that we're not talking about subsystems layered upon subsystems layered upon subsystems. Yeah, and you definitely have to, like you said, you have to be able to turn on a dime, see where your options are. And I like how the advanced techs work. The fact that they put out the, the draft instead of, cause there's two ways that the techs can come out. You know, you can say, now I can get a red tech and you start flipping up cards randomly, or you can do the obviously better way where the techs are on the table. So you can sort of plan your turn. You can see what's there. You can choose where you're going to go on the tech tree to get the ones you want and that are going to help you in your strategy of the time. Public service announcement here. This is a more you know moment from So Very Wrong About Games. Like many games, this has a quote-unquote introductory version 
where you don't play with faction special powers and you don't play with the quote-unquote expert variant. If you're capable of playing Beyond the Sun, you can play the expert variant. You should play with special powers, you should play with the expert variant. Because in addition to the fact that you can have some ability to see where you're going and know what techs are available, which cuts down on downtime, actually, because one of the most tedious things in that very those first games that we played was where someone gets two new tech cards that they've never seen before. First, they work through the event. They pay for the action. They then look at the two new cards, pick which one they want, and then sometimes there's an immediate benefit from, from the card that they just found, and then going through that. With the expert variant, it's very quick. They know what they want most of the time. They take it, they do it, 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 it's done, you move on your merry way. But more importantly than that, the strategic horizons that you get from that, the leverage is, is really large, because a lot of the techs rely, at least in part, on immediate benefits that you get for researching it for the first time. And if you don't know what those could possibly be, you're not in a position to set up interesting combos or look ahead. But if I know that I'm saving up to research a tech and I know what tech I'm probably going to go for, I can be in a position to leverage that unique one-shot bonus. Some techs are only one-shot bonuses. Now, they're very powerful, but they're yet more satisfying when you know they're coming. That's right, because then you don't have to waste... Because like you said, you get a bonus, it'll give you some resources, and that'll stop you from wasting a turn having to to get production somewhere else to get what you need, right? And that leads into the production of this game, which is fantastic because it lets you produce every turn and you're either doing production or, or, and you really need to make sure you keep, you know, sort of a, a pool of both. Cause if you ever find yourself with zero of something, you could be in a lot of trouble. Absolutely. You still have fallow turns. You still have turns where you can't really afford to do much, but they're not entirely fallow. It's not like you can't do anything. Since you produce at the end of every turn, if you're out of ore, ideally you want to set yourself up in a position where it's like, well, I have this action available to me that doesn't cost any ore. Maybe I'll move some of my ships that are already on the board. Maybe I'll do something with my population. Maybe I'll research that cheap tech, even though it's the mid-game and it's not really going to be terribly valuable, but at least it's the one that doesn't cost me any ore. Population's a little more tricky, but sometimes ideally you can do much the same thing. And then you just take the production that you need at the end of your turn. Now, there are population pressures. As the game goes on, it becomes more and more difficult to produce more population based, just based on how the tracks work on your on your board. It's a relatively common feature in Euro games. And that pressure is satisfying. It forces you to go and diversify your production and make sure you can take care of it. But even though you end up in turns that are inefficient because you didn't plan well, you never feel like you're effectively forced to skip a turn. No, that's exactly what I have here. Uh, the turns feel like you've always accomplished something. Like we say here, the flow is real because you're just, you know, placing your pawn, doing the action, and then it's the next player's turn, and there's no round reset. There's no, you know, pull in all the cards, any of that. It goes around and around the table, and it's a great time. Yeah, and I think that ultimately, like many things, it hits a very excellent balance between rewarding forward planning, but not penalizing you too badly if you find yourself in a bit of, in a, bit of a corner. So if you can plan for those fallow turns, you're going to be better off. But even if you're stuck, you can still do something, and it'll probably feel satisfying. Because much as I love Agricola, again, to compare it to one of the kings of worker placement, taking your entire action to take two read can be a very aggressive and satisfying move in Agricola. But at the same time, on paper, it's a little weird. And so you have to recalibrate your expectations about what a good action looks like. In Beyond the Sun, you don't have those same kind of agonizing trade-offs because you can always just tack on production at the end of a round, which is honestly nice, and it makes the game feel a lot smoother. I do want to go back because we touched very briefly on 
the fact that everyone has uh, their unique player boards and different powers, and I think that adds a lot. I would never play with just the basic, like Mark said, go right into the advanced boards. There's all these different columns that were, are, you know will make your resources fall into place, and all the different factions have different number of columns and different ways they get uh, special abilities. And I don't think it breaks the game in any way. They're all fairly mild and non-game breaking. I like them. I don't feel that they're particularly satisfying. I, I, I like it if my faction abilities are a little bit stronger. But again, this is a Euro management game, so you're not going to have tremendously consequential faction powers and still preserve this balance of the tech tree and, and how the planets work. So I understand why it's the case. But in terms of variety, I don't think that the faction boards provide nearly as much variety as some of the other elements of the game. And again, this is something we, we flagged after our first play. Every column of tech... Uh, namely column two and three of tech, level uh, level two techs and level three techs, are going to have six events out of a pool of ten. Events are relatively minor. They're relatively trivial. They're primarily involved in making sure that the game proceeds and always gives you access to being able to invent level three and level four techs, because at the start of the game you can't. The techs, on the other hand, in every uh, in level two and three tech techs, there are 16 techs, of which you're only going to take six, and that has a huge impact on how the game plays out. There's going to be some control in terms of making sure that you always have access to the different classes of tech, but which specific techs hit the board will have a tremendous impact on how the game turns out. And in terms of the objectives, there are going to be two different objectives that are going to be pulled unique to each game, of which there are four possible ones, and you're going to pull one. And that, too, has a really, really, really significant impact. And I really appreciate the fact that those endgame objectives are consequential in terms of your score, can help give you some direction in terms of competing for things, and really do give the, the game a different flavor. And at the end of at the end result of it all, although it is still a relatively smooth worker placement management game, you do have a tremendous amount of variety in terms of how the action spaces develop and how, how your, your goals proceed. Yep, I have that all as well. Different experience every time, like you said, because all the different techs, and even the planets, the way the planets are going to come out on the on the combat board, they're going to come in a different order, and that will definitely change up how the game is played as well. I would compare it favorably to other, even non-Euro games, that talk about how well you, you can have different objectives and, and different cards are going to come out. An example that sprang to mind actually was a game we've been playing uh, rather a lot recently, which is Civilization and New Dawn. The base game had far too few endgame objectives, and so you would see the same two or three all the time. And it had the same wonders showing up all the time. And even with the expansion, you still see a lot of overlap between different objectives that come out and different texts that come out and different, uh, the same great cities and the same great wonders. Even just the base game out the box and beyond the sun. It's not a radically different experience every time because at the end of the day, you're mostly just managing your resources and managing points from, from the tech tree and from the planet board and endgame objectives. But it nonetheless adds a tremendous sense of variety and scope to a game that otherwise might have felt more pedestrian. I'm just going to touch on the components very quickly. You use all, I don't want to call them dice, because there are some particular cards that you may roll them. There is one event that allows you to roll them. But so normally they're just cubes, and they're six-sided cubes. Well, of course, they're six-sided, but all this, they are all... I prefer two-sided cubes. They're all printed. How's that? They're all printed, and therefore they're six-sided counters. So I thought that was a great idea, a great way instead of, you know, managing all these different tokens, you use these cubes and you can turn them to whatever side you need. 
I feel as though, though, if they had reduced the size of the boards and sort of condensed everything a little bit, I think it would make the game much more playable. Because, like we said, there's this huge tech tree, and then there's this little combat board, and if you're far from the combat board, sometimes you tend not to concentrate it on as much because the writing on the card's so small, you concentrate on the tech tree and vice versa. If the upcoming techs are on the other side of the table and you tend not to care about what's coming up and it'll change it'll affect how you play so i think if they just reduced everything down it would make you know the game work even better i agree entirely with your criticism i don't know how i would solve it because you do need to be able to see everything available on all the techs but as a result as you say no matter where you sit you're going to be missing out on something there are the available text, which is effectively the range of actions that are currently available on, on, on the board. And that is a big quadfold, shall we say, monopoly-sized board. Everyone's got their own player boards, and that's right, going to be right in front of them. But then there's the planet board, which you might or may not be close to. But then there's also the tableau of upcoming text, which we absolutely agree is, is the best way to play. But at the end of the day, no matter where you're sitting, you're going to be far away from something. And you're exactly right to emphasize that the closer you are to something, probably the greater emphasis you're going to give it in terms of the overall game. And if you're sitting way across the table from the planet board, you're probably not going to be as inclined to pursue a, a colonization strategy. And this is an unfortunate ergonomic consequence of the game. And you, you touch on the double air boards, Mark. Double air boards. That's all I have to say. I love, <laughs> love double air boards. I, I was impressed. I, this is in Rio Grande design. From a first-time designer. From a first-time designer. This is not something they're merely distributing or localizing as they would in many other cases. And they've done a really, really good job. All these screen-printed resource cubes, as you say, and the double airboards, it's a very, very neat production. There's not a whole lot of art, but honestly, I am very sympathetic to this design aesthetic. It's, it's somewhat reminiscent of some of the design priorities of Sidereal Confluence. In Sidereal Confluence, there's not a whole lot of art going on because you need to be able to see what all the technology cards do. Same thing with Beyond the Sun. There's a picture of a planet for the planet cards, sure, but all the texts are basically just, this is an action space, and here's what it does. And I'm okay with that. Mark, we would be remiss if we did not mention the box of the game itself. The player boards fit in this nice little <laughs> square in the board. And normally, you know, it would be hard to pull them all out. But it's got this little lever. And, and, and I've never seen a board. Have you ever seen a box do this before? I haven't. It has <laughs> this little tab. You pull up on it, and the little player boards come right out of the box. And it makes, you know, set up that much more fast. <laughs> It, it is a delightful little touch. That is absolutely true. I do like how the six-sided resource cubes have led us to conclude that since what you do is you often change a population counter to a fleet, that naturally this means that we are all Transformers. All Transformers. And I love all the different ways we explain how we populate planets. That's always fun. You, every time you play, you can invent a new way to populate planets. That's that's always fun. Well, the rulebook says that the population cube comes back to you because that's the population of the colonists who are settling the planet. Your preferred version is? Well, the one I played with last was that I sprayed the planet with a, a like a bio gel, and then I send my a couple populists down and, and detonate them, thereby spreading the DNA across the entire planet. Two equally valid interpretations exactly. of what happens in the game. I also want to mention that as a rules explainer, I find Beyond the Sun pretty good. Because, as we talked about, the action spaces grow organically. 
And because it's a worker placement game, and it's literally a question of just put your worker somewhere and do what the action space says, there's a very small number of action spaces that new players have to concern themselves at the beginning, but they all implicate all the fundamental processes of the game. And so it's a breeze to explain, and as new texts show up, new players can then say, oh, well, this opens new horizons and shows me what other things that the core game system can do. And it makes it far more accessible than a lot of other Euro games of comparable weight. Yeah, it's one of those fantastic games where it sort of pulls you along for the ride at the beginning, right? It sort of teaches you as you go, gives you one ship out in space so you can tootle around and do stuff with it. And then, like you said, basic text at the beginning, and then off you go to the races. So to sum up, I have to say that I'm thoroughly pleased with Beyond the Sun. I've enjoyed all my playings with it, and because of the variety that has been evident in all the playings, I'm looking forward to future playings of Beyond the Sun, trying out new strategies, reacting to new techs, making sure that I can find new balances based on the pressures that my opponents are giving to me, managing the resource challenges I find neither overly brutal nor overly forgiving, and the balance of different strategies strikes me as good. I just find the entire experience very, very well balanced as a playing experience, not necessarily balanced strategically, but just a a fine level of attention to detail in the design work in terms of making all the different parts come together in a very natural, organic way. And it's easy to expand, Mark. I'm looking forward to the first expansion. <laughs> <laughs> I Look, I am perfectly happy with the amount of content of the box. This is a packed box with lots of stuff to explore. We haven't seen all the text hit the table, and this that is, alone... This is true. All I'm saying is that it's, it would be, it's an easy, easily expandable, just like a whole bunch of new texts, new races, new planets, easily... All right, get and, to work. And cheaply expand. Get to work, Dennis. Get to work, Rio Grand Games. Yeah. You've got your mandate. Walker has spoken. That's right. I have spoken. I am throwing money at the screen. Make it happen. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. Or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. Especially if they live in Portugal or Estonia. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.